this time I'll ask Michael Beagler to come up and uh, read the scripture passage for today's message. Michael? I'm going to be reading from Mark 11, well, 11 and 12. It's 11, 27 through 12, 12. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origins, they feared the people, and everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for sending your son who you loved Um, for us, that we might be reunited with you. Lord, I pray that um, as we worship together here, that you would be glorified and that our hearts would be turned to you. I pray that you would give us unity in your spirit and that you would be honored through the time that we spend here today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael. So welcome. My name is Matt and We're going to walk through this passage in Mark. Uh, We take uh, games 
somewhat seriously in our home. And so when you invite other people who enjoy games, uh, there can sometimes be some differences of opinion on how certain games should be played. So, for example, the game of Monopoly. Uh, it, supposedly there are rules for Monopoly, but let's be honest, uh, rules evolve in households to the point that you have things called house rules. And if you play Monopoly with other Monopoly players and someone lands on you know, luxury tax, there's debates on how you solve that. Or if you're selling back your properties after they've been rented. Like, and there could be you know, cause for concern if someone doesn't believe that when you pay things to the bank, they actually go into the center of the board and if you land on free parking, you get a payday. Some people think that you don't play it that way. And so at some point, if you're playing with other gamers, there's this, you know, what do the rules say? And you used to pull rules out of the box and read them. Now you just Google things. And you want to know who's in charge. Who gets the final say? Now clearly in our culture, there is constant um, bickering, if not fighting, about issues of authority. Right? Is there a author who has the authority to require a mask? Is there authority to perform a no-knock warrant? And um, many of the times, these these questions in our culture they come with a lot of toxicity, and that means that we're prone to listen to some authorities and reject others. And then the, the passage that Michael read for us has Jesus demanding a level of authority beyond any competing sources. He claims the very authority of God. And in fact, uh, what he's saying to these first century leaders is he's saying, we need to, you, we, you leaders, you need to quit playing games with God and submit to God. How does your heart respond when you hear a, a phrase like that? Quit playing games with God and submit to him. My guess is the phrase uh, hits different hearts in different ways. Uh, for example, I'm going to talk about four types of people when you hear something like, quit playing games with God. Some in the room are going to be like scared Sally. And scared Sally is the type of person that lives in constant fear of God's judgment. Uh, scared Sally constantly sees herself playing games with God and sinning against God and fears that, that God is going to quickly bring punishment into her life or your life. If you're not a scared Sally, you may be more like an angry Amos. Uh, and an Amos looks at the God of the Bible and doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Angry Amos sees God as a cosmic killjoy or worse, a divine dictator. Angry Amos sees any divine threat as imaginary or uh, maybe insulting. So in between Scared Sally and Angry Amos, you might have who I'm going to call uh, Concerned Carol and Convicted Ken. Uh, Concerned Carol is going to see the truth claims of Jesus and Christianity She's maybe not yet committed her life to Jesus, but she's becoming more and more concerned that her life is out of step with God's ways. Convicted Ken would be someone I would say is already a Christian, uh, but today knows that there are areas of their life outside of the authority of God, areas where he has not surrendered or submitted his life, areas that may require repentance. 
So I want to come back at the end of this passage and talk to those four types of people. But let's walk through this passage. There's really two sections, but they're, they're tied together. They actually happen uh, on the same day during Jesus' final week uh, before the cross. In the first section, what we see is an elite audience coming with questions, or more, more like demands. Uh, verse 27 says, they arrived again in Jerusalem. The day in question is Jesus and his band of disciples. They're coming in every day uh, during a major festival known as Passover. And it says, while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, they come up to him. And they say, this is a question, by what authority are you doing these things, they ask. And who gave you the authority to do this? So the questioners are named. They're chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders. These would be the Jerusalem elites, uh, both at a religious and political level. They are like uh, one part uh, United States Senate and one part Catholic College of Bishops, all wrapped into one. And they come demanding, asking, Jesus, who said you can do what you're doing? Who said you can say the kind of things that you're saying? And the subtle point is, we didn't. Right? We didn't. You didn't come to us. You didn't get our approval. You're in our town, so they think. It's actually his city, but... You're in our town, and you're stirring up trouble. What gives? Who died, and who made you king? Jesus' reply is ingenious. Verse 29, his reply is, well, I'm going to ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what I, am do what I am doing, by what authority I am doing the things I'm doing. And he brings up John, and this is John the Baptist, this predecessor of Jesus, uh, who is a, a great, well-known, respected prophet. And he says, was John's baptism, was it from heaven, or of a human origin? You tell me. And it says that these uh, leaders, they pull aside and they discuss among themselves, and they say, whoa, wait, wait, if we say from heaven, Jesus is going to turn, turn around and ask and say, well, why didn't you believe John? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people. <laughs> For everyone held that John was really a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, oh, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, neither then am I going to tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So just a few years before Jesus' ministry, thousands of people were attracted to this prophet known as John the Baptist. We actually looked at it months ago, but in Mark 1, it says the entire Judean countryside, Jerusalem, they were all attracted of this person just to a few miles outside of Jerusalem at the Jordan River, proclaiming that God was going to do a mighty work in the country. God was going to do a mighty work in the land, and all it took was for every single person to repent, turn their life around, and follow after God. And if you were ready to experience God, then to symbolize that, receive a baptism, go under the water, come out of the water, live a new life for God. He was a prophet. He spoke truth to power. He was a good teacher. He lived humbly, and he loved broadly. And then when a Roman politician tried to shut him up because 
uh, John was calling them out for some infidelity and adultery, his life was taken. He was a hero to the masses, but to the Jerusalem elites, these very same people asking Jesus questions, John was a threat because he had called for national repentance. Total, from top to the bottom, to the poorest of the poor, to the wealthiest of the wealth, to the one with the power. Everyone needs to turn to God, and those folks didn't. And so when Jesus asks his question, the leaders are like, uh-oh, we're damned if we do, and if we're damned if we don't. Because if we side with John, if we say, oh yeah, yeah, John, he, he was from heaven, all the people are going to be like, but why didn't you respond when he called for you to respond? But if he denies if they deny that God had nothing to do, um, I think everybody would have been like, then you have no idea what is of God. Like if John wasn't of God, if a man with that kind of humility, if that person who could stand up and speak truth in that kind of situation, if someone like that is not from God, then who is? And so they say to Jesus, uh, we'd like to continue suspending judgment. We don't want to have to say anything we don't want to have to decide today. And then Jesus' response is, well then, if you can't tell me where you think John got his authority, I'm not going to tell you where I get mine. And that conversation comes to an end, except he's going to, he, Jesus is going to then start talking some more. We'll get to that in a second. But let's just admit on the front end of this, this first part, we all do this in our lives. Sometimes people show up and they expose things in us that we know require a change in our life, but we find all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't have to face the music. Something's going on right now in our culture would be, some will say, oh, I'm not going to listen to him because he's a middle-class white male. And then flip it. Others will say, I'm not going to listen to her because she's a black liberal lesbian. Some will say, he's too weird, she's too uppity, and that person has a past. Let me just ask, why are we so hesitant to receive truth when it comes our way, regardless of the speaker? Maybe there's something wrong with us and not them. Maybe there's more toxicity in my soul than there is in those speaking to my soul. Interesting, Jesus says authority is either derived from the world or it comes from heaven above. And that means a person who speaks for God or from God can be any color, from any political party, from any church denomination, coming from any socioeconomic group, with any level of education, and from any gender. Truth is truth. Authority is authority. It's not reshaped by time or culture, and why? Because God doesn't change. If God doesn't change, truth doesn't change. Morality doesn't shift. Justice is justice. And this is really how most major cultural shifts have happened. Those who have come and spoke prophetically is they've based the need for change on truth. This is what the abolitionists did. They came to the Americans who said that... <laughs> All people were created equal, and yet said, yet you continue to treat people of a different race unequally. They used truth and spoke against the misuse. This is 
why uh, feminists and early um, suffragettes, they showed up and they said, how can you say all people are made in God's image and yet think a woman is left, less gifted or less wise to vote or perform surgery? Right? They're using truth. They're using arguments and saying, look at this. Look at that. Logical arguments, moral judgments, they come from truth and reality, and they don't shift with time and circumstance. In time, we use these things to see change. But these things that are true have come from heaven. Or they haven't. Right? That's kind of the point. Did they, does this authority come from God or does it not? So this brings us back to Jesus' encounter with the religious elites in the first century. Jesus is reading between the religious leaders' ploy. He knows that suspending judgment is just an excuse to not deal with the facts. Maybe you guys know this story from the history of St. Augustine, but it reminds me of St. Augustine before he converted to Christianity, before he was able to submit his life to Jesus. The reason he couldn't is because he wanted to persist in infidelity. And so he prayed a prayer once, give me chastity, but not yet. And he knew that he needed to repent. He knew he needed to submit his life to God, but he, not yet. I don't want to submit to God, not yet. I don't want to obey. I don't want to yield. I want to do my own thing for just a bit longer. Thankfully for history, God brought down Augustine, and he might bring down you or me. But the reality is, by not intentionally choosing to submit God, we're actually continuing in a place of rebellion. And that's what Jesus is going to say in the next, uh, using the next story. Verse 1 says he's going to speak to them in a parable. Uh, a parable, uh, it's not quite an allegory, uh, but it is a story with a point. And usually in Jesus' parables, if, you wanna, if you're studying the parables for yourself, often there, is many, there are as many lessons as there are characters. There are different characters. How should each of them respond? Let's look at what this parable has to say. He begins by saying, A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. We're going to stop for a second. Just want you to know that the listeners right now would know full well that Jesus is speaking about Israel. The Old Testament regularly uses this term vineyard as a metaphor for Israel. Uh, one example would be Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9 say this. It says, you, God, transplanted a vine from Egypt. So this is, God, you brought the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Israel is that vineyard back to the story. It says in verse 2, at harvest time, he, this is the owner, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Notice that he's not a cruel owner. Doesn't demand all, he asked for some. But they seized him, beat the servant, sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant to them. But they, they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son. 
whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, they, they'll respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. By the way, that isn't logical, but, that, but we, when we want what we want, we make things sound good. Oh, if we kill the son, I bet the owner's going to put us to the will. Verse 8, so they took him and killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus ends the parable by saying, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So let's disciple Jesus' parables, uh, character by character. The first, the owner, is God. Second, these farmer tenants, these are God's appointed leaders over his people Israel. Usually the, 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 the ranks would be prophet, priest, and king. In other words, <laughs> the very types of people who have been asking Jesus' question about authority right now. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders. Next, he speaks of servants. And these servants are all of the prophets that have preceded Jesus. Time and time again, God sent prophets to call for repentance, to call for returning to God, to turn away from idols, to act justly, to love mercifully, to walk humbly with God. But time and time again, Israel's elites and other, some of the people, they would reject the prophets and sometimes even kill them. And they'd find all sorts of reasons. Jeremiah was too depressing. Ezekiel was just weird. Amos was unprofessional. Hosea's wife had a backstory. John the Baptist was all hellfire and brimstone. And Zechariah was dangerous and he needed to die. It says, though, that God then sends a son. The owner sends his son. Now, we know this to be Jesus. Notice that God doesn't bring judgment willy-nilly. He's a compassionate God. He's trying to restore Uh, order and restore his people. But he sent prophets, and now he sends Jesus. And then again, the machinations of the heart. What are we going to do with the heir? What are we going to do with him? Let's kill him, they say. God's son is going to be rejected. God's son is going to be killed. The temporary tenants, these part-time rulers, they don't want to submit to the authority of their owner. They want the land all of themselves. They won't pay what they owe. They won't bow where they should. They won't submit to the son. And it says, so in one final act of piracy, they take out the heir. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus is warning the elites in the first century, I think us today, that uh, unfettered rebellion can't go on forever. God will bring justice on insubordinate tenants. God will preserve the vineyard. Did you catch that? It says he's, he's taking it from the dangerous, murderous tenants. And it says he gives it to others. One day, all of the bullies in the playground get removed so that God's children can play safely in the land. 
Now this is going to be partially fulfilled 40 years later when the Roman Empire shows up and brings judgment on Jerusalem. Many of these chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders would have still been kicking. They would have experienced in real time what Jesus had warned. Notice that Jesus adds on to this story there in verse 10. He says, he tells this parable, and then he connects it to, to, to an Old Testament passage. He says, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stones the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. So he's quoting from uh, an Old Testament book, Psalm 118. It foretells a day when some sort of rejected stone is given prominence, either some sort of cornerstone or maybe an archway capstone. Um, But do you catch the image? I mean, it's, it's using the image of the temple. And it's saying that you have these builders on site and people are bringing them stones. And this stone shows up and all the so-called experts go, oh, we don't want that stone. That's a bad stone. We've never seen a stone like that. And they want to chuck it, get rid of it. But there's God or this expert builder who swoops into the so-called experts and says, oh no, that's the most pivotal stone of all. If that stone isn't placed rightly, anything you build is going to collapse. Verse 12 says, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Remember, they're trying to shame Jesus in front of the crowd with their questions about authority to make him look bad. And all of a sudden they realize he just pointed at us and says, we can't build a temple. We can't choose the stones. We are rebellious. We're the ones that killed the prophets. They, they pick up on that. It says, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Oh, admittedly, authority is a scary term. But when you realize Jesus is claiming to have authority from heaven, it's also important to notice, how did he use his authority? He lays down his life. He's willing to be rejected and killed. Ultimately, he's there to save the people. He's there to make sure that the bullies are stopped. And yes, these human bullies in the first century were bad, but the greatest bully was Satan and sin and death. And so how does Jesus use his authority? He lays down his life. Mark 10, 45, we read this several months ago where it says, the son of man, Jesus, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is showing for all who are willing to see, this is how you humble yourself before God. All those religious leaders, they're all about gaining more power and getting more control over the people. What does Jesus do? The one with all authority on heaven and earth, he lays down that and he bows his head and goes to the cross He says to God, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was obedient to God even unto death. This is authority rightly used. And yet it is authority nonetheless. And Jesus is saying, if you play games with the authority and claims of God, 
judgment will come. But those who submit to God will be given the vineyard. They'll be given God's gifts. So let's go back to four types of people. Just wondering where are you today? Scared Sally, angry Amos, concerned Carol, convicted Ken. To the scared Sallies, don't miss what Jesus says there in verse 9 and 11. Where he says he's going to kill the rebellious tenants but give the vineyard to others. And then in verse 11, it says the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. God intends to give gifts to his children. And it is a marvelous gift that Jesus has procured. It's a promise that to the scared Sallies, if you've trusted in Jesus, you don't need to fear God's judgment. That judgment fell on Jesus. God will take care of you. He's brought you into the vineyard of God's people where you will always remain. The bullies will be removed and God's family will be preserved. Scripture says God loves us with an everlasting love. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you have an overactive conscience, scared Sally, let me invite you to rest in the love of God that Jesus has bought on the cross for his people. If you're the angry Amos, I just want to say it's true. Christians cannot deny that one aspect of God's character is holy justice. That is an aspect that is true of God's character, that he will ultimately right all things that are wrong. Uh, there are, Jesus talks about hell and judgment uh, more than anyone else in all of the Bible. Um, but like I mentioned before, before, a little bit about Jesus' character is just ask you to reconsider your anger and take a fresh look at Jesus. Jesus is this son who's marked by humility and service. He's willing to die and lay down his life for his people. When you submit to him, it is a submission to authority. It's putting your life in his hands. And that can be a scary reality for some people. But I would ask, how is your life going ignoring Jesus' authority? Are you more loving or more at peace? It is true that walking with God is not normal. But I don't think normal is very attractive anymore. I'm not sure normal brings much, much peace or much hope. And I would just encourage you, you know, don't be like the first century leaders that um, keep saying, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to have to answer. Um, just invite you maybe to pick up your Bible and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and watch Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Consider Jesus. I think there's more to see about Jesus than, you're, than we learn from late-night television comedians. Let me talk to the concerned Carol. And that's someone who's come to see that it is time to repent and submit their life to Jesus. Let me just assure you, it is not too late. I think that's one of the subtle lies. I've gone too far. I've disobeyed too much. No such thing. God's grace is bigger than our sin. Um, 
And just maybe all of the trials of 2020 are God's means to bring many to himself. Suffering often serves a prophetic purpose. It screams to us that the world is broken and in need of a healer. It screams that my life is broken and in need of a healer. And I would say don't ignore the prophets. Suffering is and should be a servant that leads us back to God. There was a Chinese Christian named Watchman Nee who lived most of his life in the 20th century. And he wrote this in 1972. He says, We who are so self-righteous and yet so blind need once in our life to encounter God's authority so that we may be broken unto submission and so begin to learn obedience to the authority of God. Some of you who have worked with horses know that it's a beautiful thing when the horse finally submits. A broken horse can do amazing things that a wild horse will never do. In many ways, submitting to God is a beautiful thing, life-changing thing. It often begins with a prayer of something like, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe you lived and died for me. I believe you are Lord and Savior. I submit my life to you. It's not too late. I want to talk to a lot of people in the room, though, are people who have chosen to be followers of Jesus. You've professed your faith in baptism and in different ways over the years. I just want to encourage us to not ignore what God might be saying to you today. Though that we proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior, it doesn't mean we always obey God and accept his authority in all areas of our lives. Some of us need to honor God by honoring our parents. Some of us need to submit to God by honoring governments. Some of us need to honor your marriage vows as an act of submission to God. Some of us need to quit sharing Jesus publicly as an act of submission to God. Some of you need to pursue Christian community as an act of submission to God. Some of us need to confess hidden sin as an act of submission to God. Let me just encourage you about that last one. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, it talks about God is light, just pure light, which can be really intimidating. But the invitation in 1 John 1 is that when you come into the light, the blood of Jesus purifies us. And so if there's hidden sin, areas you're not wanting to submit, and you're scared to come into the light, there is only hope in the light. Darkness just means danger and continued death. And so wherever God puts light on a dark place in your life, he invites you in the power of the Holy Spirit to surrender that over to God. Come home as a willing son and daughter. Come home forgiven and free to follow God. Come home asking the Holy Spirit to make you holy and send you out in faithful mission to God. I want you to know that the spiritual world is not that different than how dominoes fall. And what I mean by that is, if you reject God and refuse to listen to him or reject his authority in any little way, it actually becomes easier and easier to reject him again and again. The opposite is also true. When we listen, when we trust and we obey, 
a different sort of domino effect occurs. We become more sensitive to God and his voice. So this is a closing question, like, how do you want the domino to fall today? In a submission to the authority or a push against God's authority? To close, I'll read some lines from Johnny Cash's 2002 song, When the Man Comes Around. It's a picture of when Jesus comes in his final state. It says, there's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? And then he says, Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers, 100 million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying, some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, you are a good, good father. And we would pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. For your kingdom is good and your will is good. Submitting to you your authority, there is great freedom. The kind of freedom that is lasting and life-changing. And so I just pray for anyone listening today as they're considering their own hearts. I pray that they would see the authority of Jesus Christ as a wonderful thing for which calls our submission. And to submit is life-giving. As the old song says, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Jesus, we're thankful for the authority that you uh, have demonstrated in your life and in your death, and now the authority that you hold reigning at the right hand of God the Father, from which one day you will come to judge the living and the dead. And you will do it justly, as everything you've ever done has been justly. So we love you, God. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your presence, Holy Spirit. Bless us now as we take the supper. In Jesus' name, amen.